I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Erin Brown. Erin Brown covers science and health for the Los Angeles Times. Before joining the Times, she worked at Fortune Magazine in New York. She's also written for the New York Times and Wired, and has covered a wide range of topics from technology to Western water policy. Please give a very warm welcome to Erin Brown. Hi, everyone. I'm going to introduce our guests. Barbara Natterson Horowitz is a cardiologist and professor at UCLA's David Geffen School of Medicine. She also serves as director of imaging for the UCLA Cardiac Arrhythmia Center and is cardiac consultant for the Los Angeles Zoo and a member of the zoo's medical advisory board. She is also a psychiatrist. Catherine Bowers uh, teaches the medical narrative writing class at UCLA and has written and edited fiction and nonfiction in books and articles. She began her career in journalism as a staff editor at the Atlantic Monthly. Uh, both of our panelists are California natives. They are also both uh, family members of a dog. <laughs> uh, they have been collaborating on Zubiquity, the book that you just saw, for more than four years, they tell me, uh, discovering time and time again the places where there are overlaps between the human condition and the animal condition. And I'll let them get into some of the details, but there's something for everyone, let me, let me tell you. Um, one big emphasis of their book and their work now involves uh, getting veterinarians and physicians to talk more. Uh, you know, examining human medicine through what maybe we would call a more ubiquitous lens. Uh, so I, I think we should start at the very beginning. What is ubiquity? What do you mean by this? And, and how did you uh, develop this interest in it? Well, I was, uh, you know, practicing cardiology medicine at UCLA, taking care of human patients. And um, I was given the privilege to go to the Los Angeles Zoo occasionally and do ultrasounds on some of their patients. And um, while I was at the zoo, I started listening to the veterinarians talking on rounds, examining their patients, and I realized they were taking care of the same diseases that we were taking care of at UCLA. So what, for example, what would you see? I mean, everything from, you know, congestive heart failure in a tamarind to, uh, they talk about diabetes in ponies, you know, a, a cocker spaniel with breast cancer. Um, you know, we learned and it went on and on, STDs. Uh, it, it, and it included also behavioral mm -hmm. issues. And so uh, Catherine and I had started talking about this, and we thought we needed a word to describe bringing together the culture of veterinary and human medicine. Mm -hmm. um, and so we thought, well, we'll bring Greek and Latin together. So <laughs> the, the longer we worked together, we just kept seeing these correspondences everywhere we looked. And right. everywhere, you know, ubiquity. And we thought that would combine well with the Greek word for animal. Right, right. So there are, there are sexually transmitted diseases in the zoo? Or, no, or this, no, no. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> they tend yeah. to have a more controlled environment. Yes. Right, right. <laughs> I hope so. Um, Vets in general. What are our tax dollars? Yes. You know, tax dollars yes. paying yes. for here. Okay. So, so you see, so you see the, you see these conditions there, and yeah, and and I, you know, I just really, frankly, never thought about it. It wasn't something that I had spent much time thinking about. What you know, we have pets. We take mm -hmm. our pets to the vet, you know, for this problem or that problem. But it just had not dawned on me that. Uh, that there would be these, these parallels. On the one hand, it's obvious. I mean, we are animals. We share with chimpanzees almost 99% of our DNA. So intellectually, I knew that. But there still was this disconnect between our human diseases and what they have. Right. And you've told me also that there's a disconnect. Medical physicians who treat human animals don't, mm -hmm. don't see it as the same, the same deal as what a veterinarian would do or someone who's working with anim you know, other types of animals, right? 
Yeah, I think physicians have typically, with exceptions, not really seen veterinarians as their clinical peers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that has a lot of explanation behind it, the history of veterinary and human medicine. And frankly, I think our ambivalence and inconsistent ways in which we see ourselves actually as animals. I think we like to conceive of ourselves sometimes as animals and other times as very unique and very special. And I think that goes for patients sometimes too. Mm-hmm. Like Barbara said, it is easy to think of us having our human diseases over here. And if they're physical, they're the ones we bring on ourselves with all of our bad habits. Mm-hmm. And if they're behavioral, they might be the ones that we have because of our big human brains or mm-hmm. our culture, oppressive culture or wonderful culture. But ours are here, animals are there. Right. And, did, and in the course of writing the book, I mean, is there a specific area of human medicine where you see that play out most intensely? I mean, you're hinting perhaps. Mm-hmm environmental things versus right, one of the inherent f- things. But uh-huh. yeah. I mean, cancer was the first biggie. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what we developed was a methodology. If I saw a diagnosis in a human patient at UCLA, we scanned the veterinary database for evidence in, in animals. So we just started, do animals get? And we see a lot of cancer patients at UCLA. And one of the first questions was, do animals get cancer? A lot of people have experience with dogs having mm-hmm. uh, malignancies. Uh, but we asked specifically, do animals get breast cancer? Mm-hmm. And we learned that, yes, they do. There are dog breeds that do, llamas, kangaroos, big cats. And we also, learned... A, yeah. As a definition, mammal means that you have breasts, and if you have breasts, you can get cancer. Right. And there are certain uh, groups of animals that are mammals who are more predisposed than others. For example, these the jaguars... Um, who are treated, these are zoo jaguars who are treated with progestins, have an elevated incidence of both breast and ovarian cancer. And the veterinarians working on these jaguars thought maybe they have a BRCA1 mutation. Mm -hmm. And BRCA1 mutation um, predisposes women to breast and ovarian cancer. And that's one that's fairly common in certain certain groups of of women. Right, which is why the chapter was originally called... Jews and jaguars. <laughs> <laughs> why, why did the jaguars get the, the hormone treatment? Is that because of their cancer, or is it before? Uh, generally, birth control oh, okay. in, the, in the zoo environment. Okay. okay. Was there any type of cancer that you did not find an animal got? Purely human. Well, there's, uh, people say that sharks don't get cancer, oh. and we found out that that's not that's, true. That's a myth. <laughs> um, but there, are, there seem to be some, interestingly, uh, and very relevant, I think, to human um, investigation, there are certain animals that don't get breast cancer very often. The um, dairy cows and goats, they call them professional lactators. They breastfeed for a living. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they have a very, very low incidence of breast cancer with tracks with the human epidemiology that links breastfeeding to a d- reduced risk of right. breast cancer. Right. And are there, I mean, delving into that a little bit further, I mean, have people studied? Uh, no, as you're already shaking your head. <laughs> it's what's so exciting about this is, um, you know, being in, I'm at line, in line at UCLA in the cafeteria, and I see, like, a very a famous oncologist, and I'm like, hey, did you know that? And, um, you know, they, there's not much information yeah. going from one side to another, so it's an exciting early stage to, do, right. to introduce that. I was wondering, I mean, one of the things... Um, you know, I was wondering, is there, are there, is there one particular disease that affects humans where, where it is perhaps a little bit further along, where people are beginning to make the connections? And I know you had mentioned to me some conversations you had at your, at your meeting uh, earlier in the year. You mean where the, where the treatments are starting to overlap? Or yeah, or even where people are beginning to, to recognize the parallels and figure out, you know, oh, well, maybe this, this is the cause of it in the alligator. You know, perhaps this is why oh. we see it, see it in humans. Right, the glioblastoma. Mm-hmm. Possibly, but I, not to keep dwelling on cancer, but that yeah. is one area where 
uh, physicians and veterinarians have been working together for a while, and some promising treatments are coming out of it. We met a veterinary oncologist named Phil Bergman, who pioneered with a human oncologist a treatment for malignant melanoma. Mm -hmm. And the two of them met one autumn evening in New York City at the Princeton Club. They had dinner together, and, um, and it was just a group of oncologists out for dinner. The human oncologist turned to the veterinary oncologist and said, do animals get melanoma? And we, uh, we'd like to say in hindsight that was a ubiquitous question he asked. Um, and it turns out that, that Phil Bergman was an, the world, one of the world's experts on malignant melanoma. And the two of them worked together on this treatment that's now showing promise for human treatments for melanoma. But it's, it's in animals right now. For the, for the time being, yes, yeah. it's a canine treatment. And I feel like I should also make the point that when we're talking about treatments for these uh, cancer studies, that they're working on pet dogs. These are not dogs in labs. These are people's beloved pets, and sometimes these experimental treatments are the last best hope for the, right. the family and their dog. Right. You mentioned also something to me about di diabetes, right? Mm. Uh, yeah, so we had a, a conference, a Zubiquity conference last year, and we brought um, the senior faculty from UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine, which is you know, one of the crown jewels of the UC system. Um, it's a wonderful, it's an you know, internationally renowned veterinary school. Their dean flew down, uh, mem members of their faculty came, and we had UCLA senior faculty. So we had a, a veterinary oncologist from Davis present a case of a glioblastoma, which is a malignant brain tumor in a Rhodesian Ridgeback, a dog, and showed the CAT scans and talked about the clinical course. Then we had a human oncologist present a case of a brain tumor in a high school principal, glioblastoma. And we had the veterinarian comment on the um, human case and the physician comment on the veterinary case. And the images looked very similar, too, even to someone who's not a physician. And we did that for, for cancer, we did it for heart disease, mm -hmm. and then we all got on buses. So veterinarians and physicians, arm in arm, we literally got on buses. We gave everybody a box lunch and a water bottle for our field trip to the zoo. And we got on buses and we went to the LA Zoo where the veterinarians hosted us and we went on walk rounds. So when doctors go on rounds in the hospital, you go on walk rounds. Well, we all went on walk rounds at the zoo. And we came about a Gwenon, who's a New World monkey um, that they have there, and the Gwenon had diabetes. So standing in front of the display is um, a very prominent human diabetologist, Dr. Andrew Drexler, who runs the program at UCLA, and Dr. Linda Lowenstein, who's a very famous veterinary pathologist from Davis. And they're talking, and she goes, well, you know, of course, New World monkeys you know, have hypertrophy, pancreatic hypertrophy in response to hyperglycemia, so that's why they have spontaneous remission of their diabetes. <laughs> versus old world monkeys who, you know, have inflammatory changes in amyloid and it's irreversible. And Andrew goes, new world monkeys have spontaneous remission of diabetes? <laughs> so it was this moment of, um, like, we need some conversations. Right, right. Yeah. And we've, through the Zubiquity Research Institute, they've been initiative... So Right, we started, um, through that, we started something called the Zubiquity Research Initiative, where mm -hmm. we have um, medical students from UCLA and veterinary students from UC Davis working mm -hmm. on collaborative projects. Right. Now, have you run into dead ends? I mean, there are a lot of similarities. <laughs> you know, genetics might be a good thing for us to talk about at some point, but, I mean, humans are their own type of animal. Dogs are their own type of animal. Bugs are their own type of animal. I mean, have you, have you hit any dead ends as, you, as you've started to explore the similarities, where, where the comparisons kind of fall apart a little bit, or... Uh, are less, yes, less useful uh, from a medical perspective. 
Well, the, I mean, the most common cause of heart attack in humans is what we call is coronary artery disease problems. These are the, the we call it epicardial coronary disease, the, the big arteries that are on the outside of the heart. Mm-hmm. So most heart disease in humans comes from epicardial coronary disease. Most of the animals don't have epicardial coronary disease. Mm-hmm. That is a disease of civilization. We amplify our risk with our smoking and our diets and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, so not every single human disease is represented in the animal kingdom, right. but there are many forms of heart failure in human patients that we also see in animal patients. Right. The kind of heart failure that causes high school athletes to drop dead tragically is seen in many cats and, um, and many other uh, kinds of animals. Right. It's also just really fun to ask the question, do animals get, do animals get right. PMS? Do animals get... Do they? Um, well, we, I was going to say that a lot of these we just haven't asked, <laughs> well, and would, it would be so interesting to, yeah. to look into them. And, and we had, um, we're, we're not the only ones who go to the zoo. They're, they had a, an orang who had dysmenorrhea, who seemed to be having painful periods. Uh-huh. So I don't know if she was having PMS. And they brought a team <laughs> of... Um, of gynecology, it was a gynecology, it was an OBGYN team with fellows and attendings and they came to the zoo and she had fibroids and oh, they treated wow. her yeah. with a very successful treatment and she's breeding. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, what's the weirdest thing you came across? Uh, that, you know, when you ask this question, do animals get X? What's the strangest, and I, th- I know there are probably several you could mention here, so why don't you each tackle one? <laughs> um, well, this is something we talk about in the book, which is self-injury. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we said, do animals self-harm? And to me, that just seemed so very, very human that um, you would even uh, injure yourself. That just doesn't even seem like an evolutionary... Well, it um, also sort of seems effect. like, a, in some ways, a cultural, uh, you know, an artifact of culture. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because you know, you've yes. got the after-school movie, or, you know, don't cut yourself. Right. And, and also, yeah, and, and sort of it requires a sense of self in the way that you, we're used to thinking of that in human beings. Right. But it just, it just took shifting the view of it um, to realize that animals, when they're under stress, will do all kinds of things to try to make themselves feel better, including turning their own teeth and talons on them, their own bodies. And, it's, and you, in the book, it, it talks about the relationship to grooming, right? That's right. And that somebody, their human behaviors, perhaps cutting, that's also related mm-hmm. to the grooming instinct. Yeah. Right. So we have like horses flank bite, or, mm-hmm. or certain dogs will lick, 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 which is grooming behavior, and then they develop the skin comes off. It's called acrylic dermatitis. Mm-hmm. Parrots and other birds will peck at their skin till it bleeds, or pluck their uh, feathers out, which is a little like human trichotillomania, where patients uh, pull out eyelashes and eyebrows. But yeah, the, the connection, we do think it connects to grooming behavior. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, many of the kind of compulsive behaviors in animals, what the veterinarians call canine compulsive disorder, CCD, which connects to OCD, those behaviors are grooming behaviors turned all the way up, really amplified. Mm-hmm. And in human patients with OCD, many of the uh, compulsions are also connected to grooming, hand washing being a, a good example of that. I always liked finding the terminology that veterinarians or wildlife biologists would use mm-hmm. that could apply to a human that we don't... So that when, when they see a cat doing that, sometimes they call it over-grooming. Mm-hmm. To think of that as applying to a human would be interesting. Right, right. Okay, so we have self-harm. What do you think the, the, the strangest, uh, strangest one you came across was? So I guess um, the two that are tied in my ma- mind are eating disorders and sexual dysfunction. So... Mm-hmm. 
Which one would you like to hear? Let's start with <laughs> both. Uh, let, let, let's start with, with the eating. I mean, what is an eating disorder in an animal? I mean, right. what, how would that present? So, um, so just so you know, we, were, we took a very skeptical position. Uh, we felt for this book to be scientifically credible. We wanted to be extremely skeptical. Right. And both of us came out of the um, educational background of do not anthropomorphize. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, that's like a scientific intellectual crime. So, but we wanted to be consistent with our methodology. So we said, do animals get eating disorders? Do they get anorexia nervosa? Do they get bulimia nervosa? And we were frankly embarrassed almost to ask, like it seems silly. <laughs> but time and time again, we found that, for example, um, on farms and pig farms, there's a syndrome that farmers know about called thin sow syndrome or sow wasting syndrome. Mm -hmm. And a pig, when transitioning from um, nursing to being autonomous, there's a social stress during that period when the, the hierarchy is being determined. And once in a while, um, one of the pigs will respond to the stress by reducing her eating and then stopping her eating. Mm -hmm. And her hair gets very thin, which happens with human anorexics. Um, interestingly, sometimes there's more activity also, which you see in human anorexics. Mm -hmm. And is it usually, is it always a female? Is it always a sow? It's sometimes a young pig. Uh -huh. So it either happens when they're transitioning into the herd or for the the mom pigs when they're weaning, okay. kind of those vulnerable times. And sometimes they actually do die. They starve themselves mm -hmm. to death. And, and actually there was a, a, a collaboration between an agricultural scientist and a, and a psychiatrist who noticed that probably 10 years ago. And we've mm -hmm. seen pictures of it. You'll see a perfectly healthy pig. They're from the same litter, perfectly healthy plump pig, and then next to it is its much skinnier sibling. Right. And then on the bulimia side, um, there are great apes and some marine mammals who, when they're stressed, will... Um, induce regurgitation, they push on their stomachs, mm -hmm. um, and they force, it's forced vomiting. They actually lap up their own vomit. It's, um, it's called regurgitation and reingestion. Mm -hmm. They do it compulsively as a kind of self-soothing right. uh, phenomenon. But that's where it was interesting, too, to take the, the animal who's in um, more of a zoo environment or maybe right. a more domesticated livestock environment and then look for similar behaviors in the wild. And we found, again, looking to the terminology that a veterinarian or wildlife biologist would use, we found this term defensive regurgitation, right. which I just thought was so interesting as a, um, that, you would, that you would use this as a way to protect yourself. And what would that mean to a psychiatrist or a therapist treating somebody with bulimia nervosa if you thought of it as vomiting to protect yourself? And do, I mean, do psychiatrists approach bulimia nervosa that way? or? As far as we can tell, there's been very little, if no, kind of contact connection because I don't think we've ever thought about mental illness as having a component outside of the prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. um, by even asking the question, do these behaviors connect to human behaviors, we expand phylogenically mm -hmm. who we think we are, who the other patients are. Right. So no, there haven't been. We are really excited. Um, some psychiatrists who've heard about the project have invited us to write for their journals. Mm -hmm. And we hope the conversation continues. Right, yeah. And that, just to continue that wild example, what we realized was that stress alters animal eating in many ways, and it should, because if you're stressed out, you might not want to be chowing down on a giant meal. You might right. be needing to be thinking about other things. Right. So there was... Um, when they reintroduced wolves into Yellowstone. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you heard about that recently. Um, there was a big decimation in the wolf and mountain lion population throughout much of the western United States, and um, it allowed the things that those animals prey on to flourish. There were deer and caribou mm -hmm. and elk that their populations 
exploded. And then they reintroduced these predators, and those animals ate less. They ate a smaller variety of food, mm-hmm. um, and they also had to change the times that they would eat. Right. Um, so again, the, this predation stress altered their eating. And of course, we're not out there worried about wolves and cougars, but right. there might be other things that feel to us because we are animals like Right. And patients who have um, anorexia nervosa, if you talk to them, they describe when they're in the throes of it, restricted patterns. They decrease the kinds of food, the range of food that they mm-hmm. eat, um, the times that they'll eat. They can become mono eaters and eat in a restricted way. And of course, they eat during less, they spend less time eating. Right. And the fact that threat from the wild causes that behavior in animals. And then the removal of threat leads to an expansion in terms of the range of foods that are eaten, the times that are eaten, and the mm-hmm. volume. Right. I can't say that that connects or not, but I think it's certainly very interesting to look at it as right. parallel. Right. And other wild examples are manatees that eat different, change their eating when there's sharks prowling nearby. Right. right. How do you deal with the anthropomorphizing problem? <laughs> I mean, it seems like it's a really you have to be very careful about how you how you think about animals when you're when you're doing this type of analysis. Yeah, we wanted to be careful and not do that. On the other hand, we were visiting, since I never got to sexual dysfunction. I oh, think sorry, I'm sorry, sorry. Right now. Um, yeah, well, we visited a stallion breeding farm up at UC Davis uh, with these you know, brilliant people who spend their lives making sure that stallions breed successfully. We learned a lot at that farm. Eye-opening. <laughs> if you do read the book, Chapter 4, it's not a bad place to start. Um, start at Chapter 1. Chapter 1. <laughs> But, um, so, you know, you, we, we listened to the veterinarians. One of the things we learned, for example, is that um, there's something called a three-mount rule mm-hmm. um, among the stallions. Stallions are given three chances to perform, and if they can't, they're sent back to the barn, um, and everyone accepts that that's just, you know, that happens. Right. Um, and as you hear, and they, and they know, like, if you when, you, when you're trying to grow a successful breeding stallion, you need to make sure that he doesn't have too much sexual activity too early. You need to make sure that his first partner is not what they call a mean mare, which... <laughs> and so when we're listening to them talking, we, you know, it does sound very human, and yeah. you wonder, well, are, are they anthropomorphizing their patients, or are, or are they right, and we've been too frightened right. to anthropomorphize? I mean, it's... it's Challenging, right? Yeah, and we sure. did we did worry and think a lot about that through the course of the project. Are mm-hmm. we are we indiscriminately drawing these comparisons? Right. And what we just kept coming back to time after time is that we're kind of used to as human beings focusing on the difference between us and other animals. Right. But in fact, we're what ninety eight point six percent genetically similar to chimps and bonobos. Um, what even uh, even to gorillas? New evidence is coming out that we're really close. Mm-hmm. And then. Uh, overlaps, genetic overlaps with many, many other animals. And in an area where epigenetics, you know, the, the environmental um, viruses and other mm-hmm. environmental phenospores that act on our DNA were in the shared environment. So some of the same epigenetic factors are then acting on similar genomes, right. which in, in a sense brings us even closer together. Right. And also right. there's this thing, deep homology. I don't know, maybe you've covered that. At explain explain what, what, uh, what, so what it is. Deep homology is this scientific concept that I didn't know anything about five years ago, never thought about it, and now I think about it almost every day. It it's, was named by three biologists, Cliff Tabin, Neil Shubin, who you might know from Your Inner Fish, and Sean Carroll, and it's a 
essentially looking at the genetics that have been conserved across species from our earliest ancestors and how those, how different genes and modules combine and spur the creation of structures and behaviors in our body. Is that pretty close? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of like taking, um, I don't know, the 88 keys of a piano or a basket of ingredients, and they can be combined in many different ways, but some of those tunes or some of those ingredients just work. They work for life mm -hmm. on our planet, and they end up getting replicated and conserved across millions of years, um, including um, how our eyes see light. Isn't that conserved between how mm -hmm. the photosensitivity and light in our eyes is the same genetic pattern as photosensitivity in blue-green algae? So we have this deep, deep connection on this very, very basic level that I think allows us to make some of these connections that we weren't, um, that would have been called anthropomorphizing in the past. Right, right, right. Do one of the things that we spoke about over the weekend uh, was uh, the idea that your book is a love letter to veterinarians, <laughs> and you got to know a lot of veterinarians as you were working on this. And I'm kind of curious, like, what is it about, sort of, in the essence of a veterinarian that that you would love to see doctors who treat humans pick up more on. Right. You know, what can they learn from veterinarians? So I definitely became a better physician by working with lots of veterinarians. Mm -hmm. And um, the first chapter is entitled Dr. House Meets Dr. Doolittle. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, there's so many things. First of all, I, unfortunately, I think we have not really reached out across the species divide mm -hmm. to veterinarians. Don't consider them our clinical peers. They, I think, have in many ways a harder job than we do. They have to be pediatricians, adolescent medicine doctors, geriatricians. Depending on the kind of medicine they right. practice, they take care of mammals, reptiles, birds, even sometimes insects, fish. Mm -hmm. And they have to do all of it with patients who can't tell them what's right. going on. We um, had a patient at the zoo, um, a lioness, um, beautiful lioness who's still there and, and very healthy now, fortunately, named Cookie. And one day, um, a few years ago, Cookie started breathing rapidly and seemed lethargic. And the vets called and asked if I would come out and do a cardiac ultrasound. And I was chit-chatting with the vets on the phone and, and um, the, the woman I was talking to, she said, well, we think you know, it could be heart failure, it could be um, something pulmonary, but we think it's cardiac and it could be a pericardial effusion, which is a collection of fluid around the heart sac. Um, and she said it could be cardiac tamponade, which is a dangerous collection of heart fluid around the heart, which we take care of at UCLA urgently, we drain the fluid, we take them to the OR. So, you know, very excited, drove to the zoo. Turns out Cookie indeed did have cardiac tamponade, um, was drained. We had this multidisciplinary team of, you know, doctors from UCLA and veterinarians. It was very exciting. Um, later on, I'm thinking about this, and I teach physical diagnosis at UCLA, and I'm thinking, how on earth did they do that? And they did it through inspection, observation. They noticed respiratory rate, body position, appetite. And there was a lesson there, I think, for all of us you know, who are so enamored with high technology. Right. That and that's the way a doctor, a, a medical physician, would have done it before we had all that technology, yeah. right? Right. Of course, on the other hand, veterinarians have a joke because they <laughs> don't like maybe that we're a little condescending. <laughs> they say, um, what do you call a veterinarian who can only take care of one species. Physician, yeah. Physician. <laughs> right. Are there, are there personality traits that veterinarians tend to have that 
uh, the, the versus physicians, uh, you know, I, they can learn from each other in that way? Or Oh, I don't know if this transfers necessarily, although may, maybe it would. One thing I noticed just as I was, as we were writing and trying to develop characters throughout the book was something of a lack of extraneous movement in a lot of people who spend time with animals. They don't mm -hmm. seem to be doing this a lot and you know, mm -hmm. talking loud and making fast movements. There's sort of a, an overall calm. Right. And, I don't, and I'm sure for some of them that's something they acquire and maybe right. for others it's something that they have inherently. Right. And, and I think, and I'm going to make a generalization, so it's going to be, of course, untrue, right. but um, <laughs> they, I think vets um, are a little bit, well, a little bit more introverted, but mm -hmm. they tend to underrepresent what they know, yeah. which is somewhat different from physicians. N not all yeah. physicians. Not all, but yeah. But just, just Maybe it will change. Right. So if, 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 if I were a physician and I was trying to improve the way I work, what would be some specific things I might borrow from the world of animal medicine that would make my patients healthier and happier? Observing, mm -hmm. careful observing, thinking about the whole animal and not just their physical body, but their behavior, their environment that would include the their social structure, the other animals around them. Right. We, we talked with veterinarians who recognized, you know, obesity, one of the, the things that human obesity, obesity doctors are now rec recognizing is that obesity is actually a disease of the environment. Um, it's our built environment, which is predisposing. And then there, there are actually probably environmental factors that are, have to do with either, you know, circadian rhythms, seasonal variation, antibiotics in the environment, lots of things. When a veterinarian has a patient that starts to gain weight, they don't, you know, tell that individual, you have no willpower. Right. They, modify, they modify the environment. And there are even wild animals who are now getting fatter. And um, the way that veterinarians and wildlife biologists think about it, I think, has something for us to. And right. they also expect an animal's weight to not stay at the same point on the scale right. for their entire life. They understand that it waxes and wanes with seasons, with mm -hmm. time of life, with age. And are there, I mean, is, is, is that also the case in, I mean, I would assume it probably is the case in human beings that your weight will change over time based on hormones or stress levels or... Well, that, that's sort of the takeaway is, um, we, we think, is that by looking at the animal case and across a broad, you know, taxonomically very, very broad range of species, you see that. And yet when it comes to us, we sort of don't think of a dynamic number except for pregnancy and... Right. You know, we think of it as being static, and, in, and that's not really, I think, realistic. Right. Um, but um, I'm forgetting what well, I was going to say. Also, you were talking when, we, when this came up in our discussions about how it kind of depends on what's healthy, what, what's mm -hmm. out there that you need to be at a, a certain weight. Right. And, and our, our main fear in our society is heart disease mm -hmm. and the, what a leaner... Yep. Leaner BMI is so so exactly. So there are birds who a normal body weight. At, if they have to migrate, mm -hmm. they need to have a body weight which is enough that they have you know the the calories and the body density to fly. But it can't be too much right. where they can't you know become can't a loft. Right. Yeah. And that's true. But we also it, that sort of touches on this other theme of ubiquity, which is a kind of normalizing. Um, expanded consideration of what we typically consider pathological. Mm -hmm. We wrote a chapter on adolescence and um, in the animal world, and we defined adolescence as the transitional period from being dependent, whether you're a clutch of eggs, mm -hmm. um, you know, being dependent on the goo that the mother has deposited, or a mammal. Mm -hmm. And every animal that's going to progress from immature to mature is going to go through this transitional phase, and there are certain common characteristics. In human beings, we worry about the very 
the fact that adolescence is characterized by high rates of accidental injury right. and death. And the reason for that, we believe, is that adolescents engage in more risk-taking. Right. Well, it turns out that risk-taking is seen across at least mammals, and there's shared neurobiology that is actually driving that risk-taking through a push towards sensation-seeking mm -hmm. and interest in novelty. Can you tell us an example of, a, of this in the animal kingdom? I'm do the others. We went up to the Monterey area uh -huh. and visited a group of sea otters that were in this um, lagoon. And the researcher there was telling us about an area off the coast of California that has very little kelp underwater, so there's no place for animals to hide. It's infested with sharks. And sea otter researchers call it the triangle of death, <laughs> uh, which was an irresistible phrase. And um, she also told us that Adult sea otters will not go there. That includes the females and the males won't go there. But the infants obviously don't go there, but there is one group of sea otter that will venture into the triangle of death, and it's adolescent males. Right. The, the daredevils of the sea otter world. Right. And what's the function? I mean, why would they do that? What does that do for well, them? Again, part of it is this um, something presumably needs to impel you from your home. You need right. to, um, and especially at this particular time in your life before you're an adult and have your full complement of defenses, whether that's your, your special quills or your thick skin or the mm -hmm. ability to outrun a predator or even um, behavioral, mental defenses. Right. Right. When you're um, not quite there yet, you need to have something that's going to help you get through it. And a lowered, um, a lowered risk might be might do that, lowered sense of risk, yeah. but it also helps you go do something that they call uh, predator inspection, again, mm -hmm. to borrow a term from the wildlife biologist, which is, seems so crazy, but these young adolescent animals will literally go up to their biggest nightmare. If they're a gazelle, they will go up to cheetahs. If they're, um, what's another example of the predator inspection? Um, if they're gulls, there's these uh, weasel kind of things called stoats. Um, if they're a gull, they will go up to a, a stoat and inspect it. And it's really dangerous. It, it, they often die from this inspection, but the, mm -hmm. the theory that these behavioral ecologists have is that they are learning their biggest danger. They're learning what they need to be afraid of. They're learning how it smells. They're learning how it looks. They're learning how it acts. And if they can live to tell the tale, then they're going to be better for it. And that's what, <laughs> and that's what our, teenage, our teenage boys do, too, then. Uh, well, it's tempting. I mean, we want to be careful with yeah. you know, how much we connect dots. Right. We want to be scientifically. On the other hand, I think it's safe just to look at the interest adolescents have in danger, mm -hmm. even in false danger, roller coasters, mm -hmm. scary, scary movies, movies. Mm -hmm. um, and just ask the question, is there a connection? You know. Right. Right. How do... Um, how have your physician colleagues reacted to this, this line of research? Well, the, I, the medical students and the, my residents and fellows love it. Mm -hmm. Everybody um, wants to go to the zoo. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and our conferences um, have been, well, oversold, and yeah. there's, I think, a lot of interest. It's, but it's brand new. Yeah. Um, I think in the initial stages, there was sort of skepticism. Mm -hmm. um, that I had to push through <laughs> a few kind of uncomfortable moments, but um, the the idea of a species-spanning approach to health makes sense if you right. take a step back. Right. Have, have there been many uh, scientific journals focused on this at all? Have there been? Have you all written anything for a scientific journal about it, or have plans to? Or we are um, there are several. One of the things that we're doing is we're connecting with the emerging uh, field of evolutionary medicine. Mm -hmm. What's and that? 
So evolutionary medicine is the logical, but for, for many reasons not yet sort of um, realized marriage of evolutionary biology and, and medicine. Mm -hmm. There are many ways that human medicine can be understood through natural selection. Um, a tumor is not some monolithic, homogeneous clump of cells. Of cloned cells. Of cloned yeah. cells. There's, there are different cells, and which ones go on and don't have their, their environmental factors. There may be selective pressures mm -hmm. between them. Um, why we get sick is an important question to ask if we want to get at how to, how to fix it. So evolutionary biology is now coming together with medicine. And there are journals that are starting. Mm -hmm. um, and Catherine's uh, the associate editor of, of an emerging journal in that area. A journal mm -hmm. called Evolution, This View of Life. Hmm. That's looking at a range of topics through the lens of evolution, right. from politics, religion, mm -hmm. biology, to mm -hmm. paleontology. Yeah. Right. Are there, I mean, and so what else do you have planned for the next, uh, I mean, right now you're still focused on the book, but yeah. is there going to be another book? Are you, uh, are you getting around to more to talk more about it? Will you have more meetings? <laughs> I'll write another one. You? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was really fun, too. Actually, we had a, we, it was, it's been a wonderful, exciting journey. I just think the greatest luck befell me when our mutual friend, Sonia Bolle, just said, oh, you guys should meet each other. That was great. Yeah. But we do have another Ubiquity conference uh -huh. scheduled at UCLA for September 29th. Um, this time, we actually have additional partners. Um, a veterinarian from the Smithsonian National Zoo in Washington uh, reached out, and he said he would like to come. He is an expert in infertility in endangered species, and he uses advanced reproductive technologies like, um, you know, um, oh gosh, I mean, every he, in vitro fertilization. I mean, you name it, he does it. They've done it with giant pandas, cheetahs, Asian uh, elephants. So he's going to come out and talk about infertility and advanced reproductive technologies in endangered species. And we have a human infertility expert so, to present a case in some women. Mm -hmm. We're also going to look at bullying. Okay. Um, and we have a bullying expert hum on the human side. And the animal, you might say, well, animals bullying, what's that mm -hmm. about? But if you think of a definition of bullying, bullying typically is a, is a dominant, someone with more power aggressing on a subdominant, on a subordinate. Why would a dominant who has more resources and already has a higher position in the hierarchy, why would they, what do they have to gain from aggressing on a subordinate? And they have a lot to gain, it turns out. Right. So we're going to have that conversation. We're going to also do breast cancer, mm -hmm. uh, breast cancer cases in some dogs, Cocker Spaniels, and I don't remember the other breeds, and um, women, and self-injury also, cutting okay. and... Um, self-injury. And then we're going to all go to the zoo again. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. I think it's time to open it up uh, to the audience for their questions. Psychology of uh, animal conflict interests me a lot. Have we looked at animal wars versus human wars? We haven't looked specifically at that topic, but I know that there's been work done on primates looking at chimpanzees and their aggression on each other in different groups but that's not something that we looked at specifically in the book. We, one, one just is interesting thing, um, which connects to bullying, which is not about warfare, but we, in the NASCAR boobies, was it the NASCAR boobies? Um, the NASCAR, the... Um, NASCAR boobies. NASCAR. NASCAR. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. The NASCAR boobies. Something for everyone in the right, story. Right, exactly. Um, How far from the evolutionary standpoint have you found these comparisons to be useful? Is your next book going to be written with a botanist? Uh, we, yeah, we've been trying to think of the, um, a good word that brings 
ubiquity and botany together. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's, it's the reason we, we, we love that, actually, that question, not a plant, a real question, is that one of the, the challenges and problems, if we can just say that, um, with looking to the animal world has been there's been people look, if this is the evolutionary timeline, um, well, yours is right here, people look left, but they don't look far enough left, we think. You know, we sort of get stuck at hominids, or we go back a couple hundred thousand years, or maybe we go to primates, so we go back six or seven million for our common ancestor with chimps, 10 million for gorillas. But actually, if you think about it, that's just still a blink. And we know through deep homology that, you know, we share these very conserved genetic modules that are virtually unchanged, not only with mammals or reptiles, go back to the Cambrian period, go back 500 million, go back a billion, and there are things that we found. I mean, one Talk of, about catecholamines. So, so catecholamines, which is the medical term for adrenaline-like um, hormones that are secreted in response to stress, right? They make, us, they make the fight-flight syndrome, they make your heart pound. Um, catecholamines are an anti-predation defense. They're released in response to threat. So one of the things that they do in animals is, in addition to speeding up the heart, they actually make the meat taste bad. Um, hunters know this. If you chase your animal too long, the meat will be not, not delicious. Lobster fishermen know that as well, that a stressed-out lobster doesn't taste good. But it turns out we were, at a, we were just with a bunch of evolutionary biologists who we love to hang out with, and <laughs> we're talking about this and talking about that, and one guy goes, oh, yeah, you know, plants... You know, they secrete calicolamines as an anti-predation thing because the uh, insects don't like the way the leaves taste when they have catecholamines in them. And in fact, potato tubers do have these little vacuoles of, of catecholamines, which means adrenaline-like chemicals as an anti-predation response are at least a billion years old, the bifurcation of animal and plant. So that's like... Just, just the idea that we would share a stress response down to the molecular level with a plant is in, just incredibly mind-blowing for me, but also incredibly connecting. Are the BRCA1 and BRCA2 found in other animals? The answer is we were intrigued by the question of the presence. Of, so, so BRCA1 mutation is a mutation um, on, in humans on the end of tail of chromosome 17, and it leads to uh, the BRCA gene is kind of like a copy editor. It looks for errors, and it... And it fixes them. Um, and so when there's a mutation on that function, there's, you, it predisposes to the development of cancer. There are certain dog breeds that do have BRCA1 mutation-associated breast cancer, English Springer Spaniels, and now I'm going to forget the other breed. But that, English, was the, that was the main one that, that, was that the study main. was on. And the question in jaguars came up because Linda Munson, who is a veterinary pathologist and a specialist in comparative breast cancer, um, Notice that, yes, big cats, uh, the felids, the tigers, um, cougars, and jaguars particularly did have this elevated incidence not only of breast cancer, but breast and ovarian. And it's that combination that we see in women who have BRCA1 mutation. And so she asked the question, she's, she suspects that there's BRCA1 mutation in the jaguars as well. Hi, um, my name is Gael Lemiel. I'm a uh, veterinarian and um, working with uh, LA County Public Health. Um, first of all, thank you very much. It was a very satisfying talk for us veterinarians. Um, I, have a, I have a comment. I really um, liked when you talked about the cooperation between veterinary students from UC Davis and uh, medical students. Um, I was involved with uh, Western University of Health Science, which is a vet school uh, in Pomona. And um, they have this uh, interprofessional education program 
which uh, brings students from all the nine health schools, including veterinary medicine, uh, but also uh, orthopedic surgery or um, podiatry. And um, so we bring students from, uh, from all these uh, health schools to study a case. And we had that, reali that uh, realization that animals and humans had very similar disease. So I, w I wanted to know a little bit more about this cooperation you had with vet and medical students. But Western students um, have been incredibly, uh, we've, we've collaborated with them both at the LA Zoo and also um, they've some Western students have come on rounds with me. Um, you know, we can't, you actually can't take a veterinary student on human rounds to see patients. So mostly when we're bringing veterinarians in, we're discussing cases. We've had um, a veterinary cardiologist came to UCLA and presented a case of a, of a, a German Shepherd, what, what was it, Rottweiler mix, yeah. who had ventricular tachycardia, which is this cardiac arrhythmia, which is very dangerous. It's the arrhythmia that you put the paddles on and you go, you know, all clear. And this animal um, was having fainting episodes from ventricular tachycardia. So the veterinarian came um, along with a student and presented the case um, to a bunch of human electrophysiologists. And uh, so we're trying and to... Th that was fun. I was, I was there that morning and it was really fun to watch all these human physicians in their white coats getting really into this case of this dog with an arrhythmia. But our goal is to actually to uh, create bonds. We would love to have other zoos, other veterinary schools and medical schools around the country start their own Zubiquity conferences because we, we want to create new knowledge and we think this is a, an approach that um, is novel and could lead to new hypotheses. What did you learn about STDs? For me, it had never even occurred to me that, that other animals would get STDs. But the second I thought about it, I realized they're not practicing safe sex. They <laughs> mostly have multiple partners. And, um, and they are indeed found throughout the animal kingdom uh, from mammals who you know, reproduce in ways that we're sort of used to seeing to um, insects and crabs and various other animals that, I don't know, it didn't even occur to me that they... Even how they did it, <laughs> like how do they even how do they even do it? So I just learned so much about that. But then also, when you look at STDs and the impact that they have on public health, and that they're preventable diseases, and especially when you count um, HIV/AIDS and the STDs, viral virally spread cancers, they're they're what is it? Something like one in four um, deaths can come from an STD, and those are um, largely often preventable. And just, just, you know, the koala, there's an epidemic of chlamydia, right, in, among the koalas in Australia. But what's interesting is presumably they're all having sex with each other, but not all of the koalas have uh, clinically important chlamydia. So clearly there are some genetic factors in some of the animals that are protecting them. And there is a parallel to human STDs, uh, even HIV. We, we learned about the famous Berlin patient who had... Uh, leukemia, and he got a bone marrow transplant. He had HIV, he had leukemia, he had a bone marrow transplant, and all of a sudden his HIV titers went, went very, he was basically cured from this bone marrow transplant. And from that, it was revealed that his donor was one of the, about 1% of the population who seems to be, have some kind of immunity to, to HIV. So when you think about that, and then we were talking about that and the mm -hmm. koalas, we thought, mm -hmm. well, you know, wild animal STDs could serve as a model for populations, of, human populations that are not practicing safe sex. Right. Yeah, that was, a, that was a question that I had, too, is how come if, they're, if they aren't having 
safe sex, why, don't they, why aren't they all 100% infected at every moment? And part of that is genetics and also that immune, we have immune systems and they work. I just wanted to ask, since you're looking at parallels between animals and humans, if you are familiar with the work of Dr. Yak Pongsep on emotion. <laughs> we made a pilgrimage up to Washington State to spend two days with Yak. Um, and in fact, our chapter, yeah. Zooforia, which looks at substance seeking uh, in animals, is sort of themed around Yak's work. Do you find autism in animals? We have talked about asking our open-ended, our skeptical question, do animals get, and applying it to autism, Alzheimer's, ADHD. Uh, there were a number schizophrenia. of schizophrenia. Right, there were a number of questions that we did not get to, and that's one of them, um, but it's on our radar. Do veterinarians diagnose psychiatric disorders in animals, depression, bipolar disorder, I mean, serious ones, and if they do, do they treat it? It's an important question to ask, and it's, uh, it's a timely one. There is um, a guy named Frank McMillan who published a book about four years ago called Mental Illness in Animals. And it's a collection of essays. Yach Pongsep has one, Mark Beckoff, um, others in the field, Franz DeWall, people like that. Um, again, we want to be very skeptical. And we're not saying, of course, animals and humans are different. But we, I, I think at this point that the way we've conceived of mental illness has been um, looking at the language-based aspects of it, because that's how we typically get at it. And by looking at behavioral similarities between animals and humans, I think we can, can find some similarities. Um, definitely separation anxiety is a diagnosis that veterinarians make. They treat it with a variety of psychotropic medications and behavioral interventions, like a human psychiatrist does. Um, Prozac for dogs, which is called Reconcile, which is, which is actually, a, it's, a, it's fluoxetine, but they take it and they infuse it with a beefy scent and taste. Um, so separation anxiety, uh, OCD or CCD, those are, those are definitely diagnoses that are made. As for depression, we came across um, a number of naturalists who commented on behaviors in geese, sea lions, gorillas, gorillas um, where, which appeared to really be mourning kinds of behaviors with depressive kinds of symptoms, reduction in eating, reduction in um, pleasures of daily activity, withdrawal, and in some cases, actually, death. Great. Thank you all for coming. <laughs>